all right, watching a bunch of TV is great, but when you're watching a bunch of different things, it gets a, it gets a bit overwhelming, but it's also really fun. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Nerd Explosion on the Canna Clark Podcast. I'm your host, the Canna Clark himself, Sean Clark, and I am joined by fellow nerd, John Wintrobe. John, how are we doing? I have very mixed feelings about everything that we watched this week, but mostly nightmares considering that we watched ReZero Higurashi and this episode of The Mandalorian, so. <laughs> yes. Let's just say I didn't sleep well last night. <laughs> that's, that's, fair. that's very fair. All right, let's get into this. So let's start with The Mandalorian in a galaxy far, far away. So this episode was a kind of a one-off episode. It was basically just Mandalorian traveling to a planet and getting stuck somewhere and having to survive. That yeah. basically is the best way that I can sum up this episode. Yes, yeah, so uh, this is The Mandalorian Chapter 10, The Passenger. And this episode was directed by Peyton Reed, who did the Ant-Man movies. Which are not your favorite MCU movies by far. I mean, the first one's good, but like... I'm not going to say the same for the second one. <laughs> but this was definitely a huge step up. If he directs the third Ant-Man movie as well as he did this episode, I'll be happy. So the first thing we see in this episode is we see bandits chop down Man- Mando's speeder as he's riding through the canyon. And he's basically ambushed and a fight ensues and he fights them off. However, one of the bandits takes baby yoda hostage and mandalorian has a really cool trick to get out of this basically he gives him his jetpack and the bandit starts walking away he activates the jetpack he goes very high up into the air and then he uses the remote control jetpack to eject it and get it back to him and the bandit just goes free falling and he does and he dies what actually happens is that he just has the jetpack fall to the ground and drop him, and then he calls the jetpack back. Okay, well... Yeah, because he has him fly the jet... We don't see it because it's the CGI budget, but I imagine what happens, he had the jetpack fly around to the point where it would, where the guy would lose his grip on it and fall down, and then he called it back. Okay, it seemed like to me he called it back while it was in air. But regardless, he basically uses his jetpack to get rid of the bandit, and so they're all defeated. A fun introduction to the episode. Yeah. He then walks to Mos Eisley because his speeder got destroyed during this encounter. And we see him go into the cantina and talk to Amy Sedaris' character who's playing Sabak with an alien that looks like an ant. Gotta love the Easter eggs. (laughs) Yes. Of course there's an ant in a Peyton Reed-directed thing. Like, does that guy obsessed with ants or something? (laughs) I mean, he did direct Ant-Man, so it shouldn't be that surprising. (laughs) I know. And then he has to escort a... The best way I can describe it is a, a female frog? Yeah, frog alien, yeah. Frog, Frog alien, yeah. And this is one thing I wanted to talk about. So, so, so Mando needs to transport her and her, and her eggs because she needs to go to Trask, which is where her husband is. And it's where there was a known Mandalorian sighting, known in quotation marks. But here's the problem, though. Mandalorian cannot travel through hyperspace, which 
I want to say, like, I've, I thought about this. I was preparing for this episode, and I, I thought to myself, it's a really convenient excuse to, to, to have the episode events unfold because the fact that hyperspace is damaging for the embryos is something that was never really established in Star Wars. Well, this is an alien species that we haven't seen before in Star Wars, so... I mean, you could say it's never been established, but, like, this character, this type of species has never appeared in Star Wars. So, just because it's never appeared in anything else doesn't mean they can't do it here. This is true, but at the same time, it does seem a little bit too convenient to make it. Like, well... This is a mo- This is a franchise that has a literal magic power that links characters together. That you, you can't be mad at convenience in Star Wars, dude. This is convenience the franchise. I can't argue with that. Like, how convenient is it that the planet that takes place on A New Hope happens to have Luke Skywalker, the son of Darth Vader, be the person that finds the message from his sister and takes it to Obi-Wan Kenobi, the person that trained their father? This franchise is all convenience. Can't be mad about it here. <laughs> not, not to mention BBA finds the one random scavenger who happens to be Force-sensitive. Yeah. Fair enough. But the point s- still remains. Uh-huh. But as, as expected, uh, problems arise, and we see two X-Wings beside him. Yeah, one of which is piloted by Dave Filoni's character, who appeared back in Chapter 6, who may or may not have seen the Razor Quest before. <laughs> yes, and, and, the other, and the other was uh, piloted by Pao Sung Hung Lee. If I butchered that name at all, I apologize. But basically, they, they're not sure if he is an Imperial ship or not. Mm-hmm. And problems ensue, and he has to bolt it all the way into this ice planet that is not Ilum, but it yeah. is an ice planet. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, yeah, no, it's not Ilum. I'm like, it's it not- could be, but I'm like, no, because the spider, we'll get to the spiders in a moment, but the spiders basically confirm that it's not Ilum. <laughs> right. And one thing i i want to i want to mention is that it's it's a very ironic twist in this episode where so we all grew up with the original trilogies we saw x-wings versus tie fighters it was it was glorious in this episode you're rooting against the tie fighters which is a very X-wings. unique twist we're rooting against the X-wings. i meant to say x-wings sorry x-wings you're rooting against the x-wings because you know in the original star wars the x-wings were piloted by the rebels and there was a lot of great scenes, as we know, and mm-hmm. we were rooting for them to beat the Empire. Mm-hmm. But here, the X-Wings are, are, are run by the Republic, or the New Republic, and we don't want them, we don't want them there. We want, we want them gone, so Mando because can we don't want them, Yeah, because we don't want them to capture the Mandalorian and put them in jail. That'd be bad. The show would end pretty quickly. Yes. That's the case. <laughs> yeah, that'd be pretty bad. So I really like that. I really like that twist that the X-Wings were not the ship we were rooting for in that period, which I do really like a lot. Yeah. Um, in order to try to get away from the X-Wings, he lands on the ice planet, but he kind of he kind of crash lands and, and shakes up the ground a bit, and the Razor Crest falls through the ground and gets heavily damaged to the point where it can't fly. 
Yeah, so they are trapped in an ice cave. And I gotta say, it it reminds me of Rebels where Zeb and Agent Callus were stranded on that icy moon in the cave together. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously the themes are much different in Rebels, I couldn't help but notice that callback, which I really liked. Yeah, I mean, again, it makes sense. Star Wars is connecting this, and the story group when it comes to Lucasfilm usually collaborate when it comes to ideas, so it's not surprising that something similar happens in The Mandalorian. It's like poetry, it rhymes. Yes. <laughs> as, as George Lucas says. We were watching this with, with the Ridge Report, and he couldn't help but notice, well, we all noticed it, but... He was very angry at the fact that Baby Yoda kept eating some of the eggs of the frog alien, and he was very upset by this, and I don't blame him. Uh, Bad Baby Yoda. Bad Baby Yoda. Yeah, I mean, like, we're supposed to think of Baby Yoda as all all cute and and fun before this episode, and, uh, well, he is still a baby, and babies are not perfect, and they can be very malicious unintentionally. Oh, yeah. Uh... (laughs) Yeah, b- bad Baby Yoda, and whenever when Mando and the Frog Alien and Baby Yoda were crash landed, I couldn't help but get this vibe of like the Mandalorian was like a was like a single mother in a in a chaotic household. That's that's the vibe I got, and he just looked so tired and just like I I don't want to deal with this. I'm done. I I really like that the Mandalorian, who is supposedly a completely independent self self-serving character and he's yeah like yeah like i say he's like a single mother with with a bunch of chaos around him and he's just done with it i just i just love that kind of irony there yeah um before they can repair the ship to get out of the cave he notices that the passenger is missing and he tracks her movements using his range finder to what appears to be a hot spring in the cave and naturally he tells her that it's not safe there and he needs and that she needs to be near the ship and we weren't this all a little too well when we see a bunch of eggs in the cave crack open and we see a bunch of alien spiders come out of them right and not to mention baby yoda triggering it because he decided to open one of the eggs and eat the contents inside of it Eh, I think that it's not just Baby Yoda triggering it. I think that it was just going to happen. Again, convenience in Star Wars. True. Um, and as like more commotion happens, we see bigger and bigger spiders come out until we see one giant one, which is probably the mother spider, come crawling out of the cave. And yeah, I, I, I can tell you I was not having a good time <laughs> while watching this. <laughs> Yeah, no. So this scene was definitely inspired by Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Oh, not Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Actually, that scene is inspired by Mirkwood and the Hobbit. So it's actually inspired by the Hobbit, not Harry Potter. It was it was very similar. Okay, because the Harry Potter scene is inspired by the Hobbit, just like this scene also is. Yes. But yeah, you see a bunch of little spiders, and you see bigger ones, and then you see the big one, like in Chamber of Secrets, where, where yeah, when I was a kid and I first saw Aragog in Harry Potter Chamber of Secrets, I had nightmares that night. Let's just mm-hmm. let's just say how it is, and yeah. Also, I want to another scene that this reminded me of is actually a video game, uh, Uncharted Three. There are several scenes in Uncharted Three where 
you are inside caverns and there are a bunch of spiders that attack you and you basically have to shoot them around you to fend them off. And that's exactly what Mando had to do. He basically had to use all of his gadgets to and blasters just to get the spiders away from him. And I'm like, hey, I remember doing that in Uncharted 3, which I again that terrified me when I played it. So I so I can understand the fear of watching this unfold. Yeah. So all fun facts about the spiders featured in this episode. They first appeared in Star Wars Rebels, actually. Um, when the rebels went to Adalon to make their base there, the group encountered the spiders when they were attacking the base. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. And the bo- both the spiders in Rebels and here, and actually more so here, are based off of Ralph McQuarrie's original concept art for The Empire Strikes Back because this exact design for the spider creature was used in that concept art that didn't make it into the movie. Wow. That's I pretty cool. I didn't realize that. That's act. I, I love how they use concept art, arts in different ways. That's a great example there. Yeah, especially in newer Star Wars. I mean, Rebels used it a lot, especially with Lothal. So it's not super surprising the Mandalorian uses it all over the place, too. Very true. So we see a fun battle, mm-hmm. and Mandalorian has to, has to use a lot of gadgets, like, like a flamethrower. Yes. You and, get to see the wide variety of his arsenal here, which is really cool. Yes, and my favorite moment is when they're all huddling in the cockpit and you just see all the spiders just charging in the door and he just he just goes to town with this flamethrower and just roasting the spiders, which was very satisfying to say, see, I must say. Mm-hmm. And he was able to close the door, but then, oh boy, here comes the mother of... of yeah, he tries to take spiders. off and the the giant, the, the, big, the big spider falls off to the ship and causes even more damage because, I mean, because it wasn't already bad. <laughs> yeah, well, luckily, uh, our, our good old X-Wing, f- well, Pilots. friends, come to save the day, actually. Hallelujah, because uh, I thought they were done for yeah, no, they probably would have been if the X-Wing pilots weren't altruistic and nice. Which, I mean, not out of character for them, to be fair. The two pilots kill all the spiders over the Razor Crest, and Mando comes out to negotiate with them so they don't, you know, arrest him. <laughs> and they tell him that they should arrest him because, you know, of all the crimes he's been committing, he's a bounty hunter. He hasn't exactly. He invaded a New Republic prison back in the first season, so they have every right to arrest him here, but they choose not to because of everything that he has done for the New Republic, both turning in three of the criminals that he was working with, as well as trying to save the wife of Matt Lander's character in that episode. So they ultimately let him go, which shows that, like, yeah, Mando's not a character that you know does all good or all bad. He does he does a lot of both. It adds a lot of complexity to what he does and his character that's, that's why bounty hunters in star wars are, are so cool are such cool characters mm-hmm. some of them are really bad but you also have some that they're just doing a job and yes. really like how in the whole negotiating you just see like okay this is what he has done and it, it just elevates his character even more right and because the ship is so damaged and the x-wing pilots are unwilling to help him repair it we see 
Mando do a very rough patch job on the cockpit just so that they can survive in space, and we see the Razor Crest fly like a heavily damaged car through space with the landing pad and the whole hole being completely exposed and literally creaking and moving about while they're flying. Not to mention the only place that's safe for them to be in is the cockpit. Yeah. So, yeah, that it's like if you blow a tire on the interstate and you have like 10 miles to go before you can get any help for it and you're, you're driving on your spare tire to try to get there and it's just wobbling the whole time. That's basically what this was. Yeah. Final thoughts on this episode? Payne Reed did an awesome job with this. I'm genuinely surprised at how good this episode was, how little I've liked his specific directing style and the other things I've seen that he's done. This was definitely really unique. I think that we've had better standalone episodes of The Mandalorian, but this is definitely better than the weakest episodes of season one. So, well, not as good as the last episode. It, it was it was fine. It was fun. It was enjoyable. That's all we really needed to be. Yeah, I really enjoyed this episode. It wasn't an episode that added a lot to lore or was an episode that really did much for the story. It was a, it was, it was a one-off, but while watching it, it was really fun. It, it doesn't have a lasting impact and yet. It doesn't have a lasting impact yet. We'll see if it does in the next episode, but so far it feels like it won't. True, but it was a really fun episode. That's that's the best way I can sum it up. Mm. So that that wraps up discussion for chapter 10 of The Mandalorian. All right. We have a lot of anime to talk about this week. Oh, gosh. Okay. Uh, we watched so much. Uh, one new show, two uh, continuing ones, and we're finishing off one of our one of our favorite anime as well. So very excited. But first, we're going to talk about Higurashi. All right. So I need to explain something about Higurashi here. So this was an anime that came out in the mid-2000s. 2000, Originally, yeah. Orig- yeah, when, it, when it, the original show came out in 2006 and i watched it during quarantine basically late march when all hell was breaking loose and my brother showed it to me and it was a show that i really enjoyed it was it's a show that dealt with with horror elements in a small town and and it centers around school children four girls and one boy and yeah, weird things start happening, and that's all I'm going to say because I, I'm not going to get into plot specifics when it comes to the original. Mm-hmm. But it's a show I really enjoyed. However, when I showed it to Wintrobe and our friend Cameron, who will be on next week, uh, they did not like it. And yeah, it's uh, yeah. He, but my issue with the original Higurashi, I've only seen the first eight episodes of it, so like. Take this with a grain of salt. My issue with Higurashi is that the plot momentum is really slow, especially in the first arc. And the events don't connect to each other as well as they probably should. I also didn't like the fact that the protagonist didn't have any real like characteristics other than existing. He felt a little plain and a lot of the elements of his character didn't feel fully realized. There didn't seem to be enough effort put into them. Yeah. So what upon rewatch, it also didn't hold up very well for me. Like I was watching like, especially the first two episodes. I'm like, Oh, this is not as good as I remember. And the reasons you say are very valid. 
So there's a new one coming out, and the dub premiered on Thursday, so we watched it. And okay, I have a, I have a lot to say. I have a lot. To I say. can already say this is a thousand times better than the first episode of the original. So the pacing is just so much better. The animation is amazing and a huge step up. So is the character designs and the score. And I do appreciate some of the callbacks that they did to the original show, but they are doing a good job of making it plain that this is a completely new show that is not attached to the original, other than being based off the same story. Right. Well, not the same. I I have this uh, original Full Metal versus the Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood. Well, obviously, it's not the same comparison, but like it, it just it, it feels that way. Just. Justin, like when it comes to improvements. Oh, but absolutely. Because now the, I feel like if Higurashi uh, ends up being a really good show, this show is going to be what Full Metal fans went through when they saw the original versus when they saw Brotherhood. So now, or what Fruits Basket like. fans are going through right now. Also very true. So here are my thoughts on the first episode because I wrote down a lot of notes for this because I have a lot to say. Mm-hmm. First of all. Oh my gosh, the dub voice acting is so much better. <laughs> so good. Uh, Michelle Rojas did such a good job with this episode. <laughs> yeah. uh, and this was oh. her ADR directorial debut, by the way. This is the first time that she's ever done ADR direction for anime. Right. All five voice, voice actors slash actresses were phenomenal in their roles as, yeah, four girls. So we have, so we have Rana, we have Mion, uh, we have Rika and we have Sadako and then the, the protagonist, which is Keiichi, who whose dub voice, oh God. It, yeah, Koi Dao. Oh my gosh. It's just like it's almost night and day between like how the because the original dub has been YouTube poop to oblivion because of how bad it is. I I mean I when we watched the original, um, we started with the dub first. I think we got like two maybe maybe three minutes in at most before i begged for sean to change it (laughs) and i usually like english dubs like english dub has to be really terrible for me not to like it (laughs) yeah yeah that's true and this is uh it's just i almost started tearing up when i heard how good the voice acting was here How do you think I felt? This is, oh, so good. Considering I watched 26 episodes with the original voice cast. I 20, can't fathom that. 20 I don't know how you survived six. that. That's nuts. <laughs> yeah. So I had to keep it together because I had to actually, you know, take in what was happening so I could actually talk about it. But no, I wanted to cry. I wanted to cry too. Like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Anyways. And you've also pointed out that the English voice acting is really close to the original Japanese voice cast for the original anime. Yes, because the original Japanese voice acting was really good in the original, mm-hmm. and it's. And I can it's agree with that. That was like that was the one part of the original Higurashi that I actually did fully enjoy was the voice acting. Yeah, so Keiichi's voice was very similar to his original Japanese voice, which you have no idea. When I first realized this, I almost bawled out crying. I'll be completely honest. But as far as the episode goes, so yeah, the pacing is way better. How so? Well, let me comp- well since I've seen the first episode multiple times, I can draw, draw direct comparisons. Mm-hmm. So it does start out somewhere where Keiichi wakes up and he goes to school and he walks to school with Reina and then meets up with Mion. That's the same. However, when they get to school, we actually 
you know, we, we see them in class, we see them interact, but in this episode, we actually see a completely new scene from the original that's, that replaces the scene in the original that did not work very well. Mm-hmm. Here's what I mean. In the pilot of the original, we see the five of them playing a card game against each other that lasted seven minutes long. Yes, it lasted seven minutes long. In this episode, we got a hide-and-seek moment where Sadako used traps and hit a cam- uh, it was It was a marker, mm-hmm. hit it, and used a bunch of traps. Yes. It was and- a very good way to show off her personality. Yes, it was so good. I wanted to cry. You know, get it because the show is when they cry. I wanted to cry uh-huh. because, oh my gosh, that was that scene with with Trash for Sadako was better than any show with Traps in the original, except for some episodes late in season two, which I, I can't say what took place in those episodes. But yeah, seeing Sadako use that was so good. And if this show go goes with their character the way the original did, because I did like what they did with her character, if they keep the same storyline, I have a feeling Sadako may be a lot of people's favorite character. That's all I'm going to say about that. Yeah, this episode definitely did a better job of showing off the personalities of the group, other than just Reina and Mion, which were really all we, that we got in the original show. I didn't feel that we got a good look at Rika and Sadako's personalities. While we get a well-rounded look at all of them, especially Kaichi. He's so much better here. He has so much more characterization in this episode than he did in the entirety of the eight episodes I saw of the original show. So you pointed this out when we watched it, but Subaru vibes? Yeah, he feels a lot like Subaru, at least when Subaru first appeared in ReZero in the, in the early episodes. Because he's an outsider to the group. He's getting adjusted to their personalities. Um, and he's trying to play off of them in a way that will try to make him feel like a more natural member of the group. But it isn't fully working because he still feels like an outsider. They're not telling him everything that he wants to know about the world around him, which is very similar to how Subaru felt at the beginning of ReZero. Right. So, and then we go to the trash yard, and then this is where the horror elements start creeping back in, mm-hmm. because we see the cameraman Tomi Take, which in the original was one of the most interesting characters in in the show. Uh, so I'm gonna, again, it's all I'm going to say about that. It's really hard not to say specifics, but not going to. But uh-huh. we see him, and he mentioned how, in a way. That yeah, there, there was a death that happened. They still haven't found the arm, whatever that means. Well, it's clear whatever that means because you know that there was a dismembered body in the whole trash heap yes. that that Keiichi and Reina were at, and yes. they still haven't found the arm. Yes, they go back there toward the end of the episode, and oh, we get a scary ending to this episode. Yeah, I mean, so Keiichi is looking in the garbage and he sees magazines he sees a bunch of magazines and the cover specifically alludes to the events that he's been trying to ask about that he first heard from the photographer and then asked Mion and Reina about and neither of them told him anything they both brushed it off and ignored it and right after he while he's looking at the magazines we pan back and we see Reyna holding a very big blade. And if I hadn't seen the original anime, 
This probably would have shocked the crap out of me. <laughs> yes, that was one of the most iconic moments in the entire sh- show in the original where she is holding the blade. Mm-hmm. And when I saw them, I'm like, okay. This- and it happened so early on here, too. I wasn't expecting it at all. No, because that happened in the second episode of the original. Yeah, at the very end of the second episode of the original, right? Yes. That's, That's yeah, fair. we're already like, again, the pacing is just so much better. <laughs> like, yes. I love that we get this reveal a whole episode earlier than we did in the original. Yes. And after that, we we think the episode's over, and then we see a post credit scene, and... Um... Yeah, we see Rika looking at... Reyna with red eyes which is not creepy at all <laughs> I'm not scarred a... for life <laughs> okay I, I have a since I've seen the original I have a very good idea what this means but what do you think it means well based off of my knowledge of the original show my best guess is that she's possessed in some way Okay. But I honestly, I'm not certain. Again, I only saw eight episodes, so I really don't know. But that's my best guess, because I know that the town is haunted by some devilish force, like in the original. So I'm guessing that's the case. I have no idea if that's true. but I will not confirm or deny if that is true or not. Mm-hmm. I don't want you to. I'd like to figure it out as we go. I'm, I'm hoping that we learn in the next episode, but who knows? So, overall, this was fantastic. Uh, when I first watched the original, it was one of my favorite anime. Then I rewatched it, and I'm like, okay, this that was not good. So hopefully it goes back into one of my favorite when this show goes through, and I am in love with it so far. Oh, can't wait to watch it every week. This was, our, yeah, this was a really good first episode. Yeah, Not a whole lot happened in this episode other than like setting up the characters and the world around them. Um, but the, especially the pacing is just so good. The animation's really well done too. It's, a, it's also a really big step up from the original. The best example of this is the opening scene where, where we see him beating the girls with the bat like in the original show. But the colors and the shadowing and the silhouettes are so much better. It looks way creepier than it did in the original. Where in the original, it was kind of, I hate to say it, but it was kind of funny and and cringy because of the way that the lighting was done. While here, it actually feels menacing and and frightening, which I really appreciate. Absolutely. I'm interested to see where the next episode goes because this episode felt like the first episode is the original one, so... I have an idea where maybe the next episode will go, but I, I am honestly, I'm hoping I'm very surprised in the show because like, like you said, it's, it's a different show than the original. So I'm hoping a lot of plot elements are different. So I'm genuinely surprised. But even though I knew everything in the first episode, I was still loving every second of it. And I can't wait to see where this goes. All right, let's move on to ReZero. We had quite the episode of ReZero this week. Oh boy. <laughs> I think I'm still depressed after this, if I'm being real. Uh, yeah, so the second to last episode of ReZero in the first half, and... Uh, yeah, this is episode 36, The Taste of Death. A very accurate title, if I do say so myself. <laughs> so this show makes us care about Beatrice. 
Yeah, so we begin this episode with a continuation of the conversation between Beatrice and Subaru that we saw at the end of the last episode. And yeah, we get a full kind of learning of why Beatrice does the things that she does. And we learn that she is a pretty much near immortal being who is she considers herself cursed by Echidna as she was summoned by Echidna and awaits Echidna's return to the real world. And until that happens, she can't, she's bound by, I guess, fate to walk the earth for all eternity. So and awful. yeah, and she, the end, the conversation basically ends with her begging Subaru to kill her. Because Subaru is an acolyte of Echidna, which means he has the power to do so. Yeah, 400 years seems like a long time to just be miserable in a library. I can understand that she wants that that she wants it to be over. It makes sense. Yeah. Ah, I don't. Oh, I hate you, show for making me care about Beatrice too. Yeah, this is like when Code Geass made me care about Rowell. <laughs> Shut up. This is, <laughs> that was ex- awful. This is exactly the case. I'm like. Damn you. Oh, the, Damn you, show. <laughs> oh, man. That, yeah, that, oh, I, I, ooh, yeah, you brought that up. Oh, boy. Anyways, continue. Yeah. So, dirt at the end of this conversation, naturally, you know, we can't have everything go sunshine and rainbows ever. This is ReZero. This show's only pain. So, Elsa walks in to the library and we learn why when Subaru first goes into the mansion, why all the doors are open. That's because Elsa was specifically looking for Beatrice. Uh, Elsa always appears at the exactly the worst time. I, I've noticed I, this. Like, yeah, I, yeah, no, I hate her with a burning passion. She might be my least favorite character in this show. Oh, yeah. Because no, every she's... time she shows up, it's all terrible. I think I might hate her more than any of the Sin Archbishops. Even after what they did the rim. <laughs> yeah, she is absolutely awful. Mm-hmm. We get a whole long out, long drawn out fight between Subaru, Beatrice, and her, where Subaru and tries to escape with Beatrice. And I love the fact that she's so small that Subaru can just like pick her up and, and run and run while carrying her <laughs> underneath his arm. True. So that was pretty great. And it appears that they have escape from Elsa, but they run into a familiar a familiar face. And uh, it's one of it's the girl from the village that, you know, had the had the mob beast with her that led the all the villagers getting or all the kids getting poisoned by it back in arc two of season one. I was shook when I saw this. Oh, I was so mad. Yes. I, <laughs> I was... was so mad. I, I, I'm I literally yell that scream like, dang it. Why didn't you just let her die, Subaru? Why? <laughs> yes, this is awful. Yeah, she's the one that let the mob beast in. And it's basically Subaru and Beatrice against both of them. Doesn't end very well. No, yeah, no they, both, they both die. Well, I guess Beatrice dies. Subaru gets knocked unconscious and then he re and loses an eye. He will he reawakened in the sanctuary in the place that Amelia was taking the trial. Yes. And but there was snow outside. Yeah, and Amelia 
kind of doesn't seem like her normal self. And I genuinely thought that she was the um, Satella, the Witch of Envy at first, because of the way that they were showing her, keeping her eyes covered by her hair and all of that. Yeah, she definitely went insane because yeah. you know, she was left all by herself. Yeah, I definitely think that this was purposeful to kind of show that Amelia isn't that far off from becoming like Satella is. Yes. That's kind of frightening. That's and, extremely frightening. Yeah. And we learn that this is due to her being kept trying to complete the trial over the course of multiple days. Even after Subaru's talk with her and the regained confidence, she eventually lost all of her composure to the point where when Subaru shows up, she literally seems like she's mad with love and lust for him because he's the first person that she's seen in probably days. Uh, and that is scary and terrifying, and I feel so bad for her. Yeah. And yeah, Roswell bad. was awful for making her do this. Damn him. <laughs> Winter, would you be so kind as to tell us why Roswell is officially the worst person ever? After this? Uh, I mean, Roswell was pretty terrible before this episode. Like, I already really didn't like him. You know, it was uh, it was really rough. And, of course, two episodes back, right? Or it was No, yeah, it was two episodes back. Yeah, it was two episodes. We learned that Roswell knows about Subaru's return by death, like we do to the tome of knowledge that he has which he directly tells Subaru this is the case in this episode um and we learn that the reason why he kept Amelia in the sanctuary by herself away from Subaru was to try to get her to grow without him and he may not be fully knowing of this but it seems to have had the opposite effect during this whole conversation Subaru of course walks in with Garfield because Garfield naturally feels the exact same way as Subaru, and it's great to actually see them bond over their mutual hatred for Roswell. <laughs> you love to see it. You love to see yeah. it. And, of course, when they go to confront him about all the terrible stuff he's been doing, Garfield is more than willing to fight the man. Good! Uh, he wants to beat him. <laughs> Which I'm like, yeah, no, no. Beat him. <laughs> Kick his butt. <laughs> Rip him to shreds. <laughs> But sadly, Rom being Rom, having full faith and being in love with Roswell, defends Roswell. And Roswell uses this opportunity to punch his hand right through both Rom and Garfield, killing both of them. And uh, I'm not okay right now. <laughs> I mean, first of all, I hate the show for actually making me feel bad about Garfield over the last two episodes. <laughs> Because they, they did do a good job making him a sympathetic character that we can actually root for and understand. And I appreciate them a lot for that. But it's, it's like, I feel the exact same way about this as when Petalgeuse killed Rem in the cave back in episode 15 of season one. Where I was like, damn you, making me care about this character I didn't like before. And then you killed them in the most gruesome way. <laughs> Poor Rom. She she, uh, she steps in front of Garfield to protect Roswell, and Roswell still kills her, and I am I horrendously so upset. Oh, God. Are you okay, Wintrobe? I hope that at some point Rom realizes what type of person Roswell is and 
stops loving him the way that she does because like he doesn't deserve it man no he's awful yeah he's awful <laughs> he's a conniving jerk yeah and other words i can't say on the podcast <laughs> uh... and we do after they're both dead roswell takes the opportunity to tell subaru everything he points out that it doesn't seem like Subaru is truly grieving them because, you know, he knows that he can just die and revert everything back to the way it was the way before. And this reveal, of course, means that Subaru now knows that Roswell knows about his return by death, which has a lot of implications for Subaru specifically. And actually is really mad about this. But before we can really get more with them we see everyone's favorite malicious bunny rabbits outside no! the window with their eyes glowing red no and subaru of course asked roswell to help them defeat them you know because subaru is like you know maybe maybe we can still win this could still turn out fine i'm like it's okay we can still maybe be able to accomplish something and roswell directly tells him no this timeline is not the one where we win i have to die here we have to die here because there has to be a better way. There has to be a way for Subaru specifically to fix the outcome so that it's better than it was the way before. Which I appreciate Roswell for doing this. Because, you know, otherwise Subaru might have been deflecting and trying to come out with a way out of this situation. Despite there not being one, because everyone's dead. And we see the rabbits attack and kill Roswell. Good. Before inevitably attacking Subaru, and we see Subaru wake up after getting attacked and killed. Yeah, we, we see him basically mauled. That's the best way I can sum it up. And he drags himself to the sanctuary. Yeah, to the graveyard trial temple where Amelia is. And uh... we see Amelia rush over to him. We don't see what Subaru looks like yet. We know that he's probably not in the best shape because he's very shaken and he's not moving the whole lot. We see Amelia rush over to him. She doesn't even try to heal his wounds here. And I think that's because her psyche is so damaged that she doesn't comprehend what's actually happening to Subaru. Yep. And then we we pan out. We see an overhead view of Subaru. And yeah, he's covered in bite marks all over his body. Like big ones. And he's heavily bleeding out. <laughs> Pain. But it doesn't seem like – again, Amelia has, is extremely psychologically damaged. She doesn't even notice the wounds. Like she knows that he's psychologically damaged, and she offers him her laugh like she did back in season one, except now it's, it seems creepy and malicious and, and because of how damaged she is due to being alone in this temple for so many days without Puck or Subaru – the show and care for her this is sad man yeah and we see subaru die and amelia again not understanding what's really happening around her she kisses him and the screen cuts the black and yeah this this episode was awful like i don't know whether this or episode 15 of season one are the most painful episode of the show like this is just this is pain <laughs> I don't know how else to describe it. To sum up my thoughts in this episode, Roswell is terrible. Elsa's even worse. 
Uh, yeah. The rabbits are the scariest thing ever. Don't live Amelia by herself, please. Although he couldn't oh, help it in this time. I feel so bad for her. I feel so bad for I, her. Well, I'm crying on the inside for her, man. Ugh. Yes. And last but not least, I like Garfield now. Like, yeah, Garfield, like, again, like, all it takes is for him to have some kind of sense of camaraderie of Subaru. Like, he recognizes him as a tortured soul, especially the scene after when Subaru's telling Garfield about Amelia, like, Amelia telling him that she loves him. Garfield initially takes this as, like, Subaru trying to brag and build himself up, which is what Garfield thought about Subaru previously in previous episodes. Until the moment that Subaru tells him that Amelia would never in a million years in good conscience tell him that. Because that's not how – like, she does care about him, but not in that way. And Subaru knows this. And this breaks him, especially in front of Garfield. And this makes Garfield realize just how vulnerable Subaru is, much like the last episode when they had their conversation on Subaru's way out of the sanctuary. Yes. And I, it's kind of interesting to me just how similar Garfield and Subaru are character-wise. I really appreciate that. It's a really humanizing moment for Garfield. And again, that's why I'm really mad at the show for killing him off just moments after that conversation. <laughs> uh, hey, it's okay. Hey, uh, want to move on to something more wholesome? Yeah, <laughs> uh, let's move on to something more okay. wholesome. All right. So yeah, Fruit Basket finally returned after four weeks. Yeah, Fruit Basket. We got a new episode of Fruit Basket. Four weeks. Yeah, we've had two weeks in a row of new episodes of Fruit Basket, and uh, so happy. Yes, and we get another one next week. Oh, uh, so grateful scenes. for that. Yeah, it's beautiful scenes. All right, so in this episode, so Uwatani has a bit of a crush on a soma although she doesn't know that uh well yeah she doesn't know that he's a soma yeah Toru knows, though. <laughs> yeah so Kuruno, goes to the mansion to confront him <laughs> yes so kuruno is the rooster yes and we know this and Toru wants to go to the soma to basically so like hey you should you should hit up my friend watani she she loves you so yeah so she goes to the mansion and we see momo yeah and we see her and Toru watching Momiji play the yeah. violin. Yeah, and, and, we saw and to, yeah, and to remind those that may not remember Momo's character, she was, she's technically Momiji's sister, but because their mom couldn't handle being the parent of a, of a Zodiac, Tori removed her memories. So Momo has no knowledge of Momiji being her brother right and momo sees momiji playing the violin and we both saw this we're both we're both thinking in our heads like oh no we're about to cry aren't we uh so yeah the second that i realized that momiji was gonna be a sub so i'm like oh no oh why i don't want to cry <laughs> not again so so, so Momiji and Momo both have the same violin teacher, although had because Momiji was removed. Because, because yeah, because they don't yeah. want them to share any kind of connection in case Momo figures out that Momiji is her brother. Yep. And uh, very sad. But 
Toru being Mrs. Wholesome. That, that's basically her nickname, Mrs. Yeah. Wholesome. She has a conversation with Momiji and she tells him that Momo wants to see you. And she, she's been watching him play the violin and Momiji is very happy. He starts feeling all the emotions. We both start feeling all the emotions. I'm like, oh man. Like we had, a, we had all, basically a month away from this show. Then all of a sudden we're just thrown right back in with sadness. I'm like, oh, stop. Yeah, it's, yeah. Um, I especially love Toru telling Momiji that Momo just wants Momiji to be her actual brother. And it's just, oh, oh, it's so sad. Oh, yeah. But after this, Toru's like, I need to find Kuruno. And, mm. and Momiji draws her a map. Yeah, because he can't go with her because the other Zodiacs are told not to meet with Kuruno ever. Like we do the, the specific connection that he has with Akito being the head of the, the Soma family. Uh, we don't know exactly the specifics of the connection, but I'm guessing it's it's more than just familial ties, if you catch my drift. <laughs> I mean, we see a hint of that or two, so I'm, I'm pretty sure that's what it is, too. Momiji tells her that he's in the inner estate, which likely means that it's going to be really dangerous, and Toru risks being caught by other members of the family particularly akito right and we see her being so scared throughout being in the soma say like we were both just like toru just 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 go just 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 go yeah because like she sees where kurano is but she's so scared of people spotting her that she just keeps trying to hide and so they're just walking in the kurano's room which would probably be the safest hiding spot Ugh. Yeah. Fortunately, Kurno sees her, and before Toru can get caught, he drags her away. Whew. Thank you, Kurno. Thank you. Yeah. He's very wholesome. I mean, he acts like all kind of cold towards the rest of the Somos because he kind of has to, but he has a heart of gold deep down, which we have kind of seen with his scenes with Uatani. Uh, yes. So basically, Toru asks about Iwatani, and he doesn't think that he should see her again. Soma clan is not exactly the best situation, especially with Akito being a cruel and awful leader. It seems that the familial members, especially the Zodiacs themselves, are not allowed to or are not supposed to really have any emotional connections to anyone, even if they're a member of the Soma family, like we saw with Tori in season one. Right. And similarly, what we have kind of seen happen with the horse and the calf spirits hasuharu and uh oh, i'm forgetting her name right now but you know who i'm talking yes. about yeah begins with an r that's all i can remember however toru does give him iwatani's contact information saying if you ever want to reach out here you go and she well she doesn't give it to him she puts she, it in a bush yeah she buries it in the <laughs> Um, and leaves it there in case he ever wants to use it. And, well, we do see him pick it up. Yeah, we get, yeah. Well, we don't see him pick it up. We see it in his hand, which, yes. you know, infers that he plans to, at some point, um, talk to Uitani again. Yay! Probably not anytime super soon, but, uh, you know, it's a step. It's a step forward. We also get another scene with Momo watching Momiji play the violin. How many times did you cry in this episode? A few. Well, it was a few times. I think like yeah. three at yeah. least. 
I did twice. This is so good. Yeah. yeah. I love Momiji. He's probably my second favorite character in the show. So Second favorite behind Toru? Behind Kyo. Toru yeah, was Kyo. third. Kyo, right. My bad. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because... Because, yeah, to, to specify, like, yeah, my favorite is Toru, but, but like, my, sec- my second and very close favorite is Yuki, while Wintrobe's favorite is Kyo, which, you know, Kyo and Yuki don't exactly like each other very much, so that's, ve- that's very interesting, but uh, it was great to have this show back. Uh, Momichi is a fantastic character, and I liked the further development of Kurino, and it was a very simple episode, but it was done so well. Yeah, this was really great. It was very wholesome. Yes, which which counteracts the pain. And when Higurashi starts to rev up, y- oh, yeah, boy. we're really going to need this. Yeah, like, I mean, I don't know how I feel about replacing the horror of ReZero with Higurashi. <laughs> Trade them one terrifying anime for another. <laughs> if, if Higurashi improves on on the original anime in, in the scariest and most thrilling aspects, buckle up. That's all I'm going to say. Buckle up. So we've had a lot of really good shows that we've been watching. And a little over a week ago, we had the chance to finally wrap up JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, or at least the fifth part of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, Golden Wind. So John Wintrow wrote a fantastic retrospective on Golden Wind for the site. He wrote this a day after we watched the episode. And it's a long one, but I highly recommend reading it because all of his thoughts are there. Mm-hmm. But... Last episode, it was it was kind of an epilogue, like like just tie tie together things kind of episodes. So. I li- I really like the how thematic we this episode is with the rest of the show. I really like the way it uses fate, especially like the symbolism in the first opening that you randomly called me to tell me. <laughs> yeah, so the whole thing with the Rolling Stone fight is that Rolling Stone shows someone when they're going to die if they're going to die soon and if they touch the stone it kills them sparing them of whatever darker fate they had in store so that most of this episode is spent of course taking place before the beginning of golden wind or during the first episode with mista trying to prevent bruno from touching the stone because it'll kill him if he touches it Mm -hmm. originally we think well yeah of course bruno's not gonna die because, you know, we've seen the rest of the show. We know that Bruno was going to live because in order for the rest of the events of the show to occur. But the deeper meaning here, the way that Mista defeats Rolling Stone, and I should say defeats in quotation marks because he doesn't really defeat him, is that Mista destroys the rock. But by destroying the stone that has Bruno's fate on it, it splinters and widens fate and stretches that fate of death to other members of the group, and we've seen Naranzi and Abakio's heads as well. Uh, showing, way yeah, to go, Mista. Showing that our three members of the group were always fated to die. However, Skolipi, the user of Rolling Stone, states that maybe it's more of a blessing to let them keep going, because maybe their deaths will be for a higher purpose. Maybe they'll have meaning. Oh, Bakio certainly did. Yeah, I would say that all three of their deaths do. Although Naranzi is is kind of, it definitely feels like it doesn't in the long run. But it's it shows them kind of how immature and and how little they were thinking of when it came to 
the boss and defeating him. So Narancia's death shows them just how inexperienced they were at the, at that moment. Same thing with Abakio's. Because, like, with the, the reason why Rizzotto comes the closest to killing Diavolo so early on in Golden Wind, like, literally during the second third of the show, is because he's experienced sacrifice with all of the members of Wisquadra being killed. But our gang hadn't experienced that yet until after Abakio's death and then further with Narancia's. And these, these two, along with accepting Bruno's fate, made them realize just how dire the situation was and pushed them forward and further towards being able to defeat the boss right and the deaths in golden wind were very sad Mm -hmm. and it's interesting how it's just tied together at this point it is kind of weird for the show to kind of take a bit of a sidestep and cover this kind of epilogue story it fits really well with the themes of golden wind with giorno being the one that pushes them towards their fate and then also ends up breaking fate as well with Golden Experience Requiem. We do see the present uh, events where Giorno is now the head of Passione. We get a really sweet moment with Trish and Mista. (laughs) Um, I should. We get the, yeah, I ship it too. We get Polnareff still being alive. Hooray. Polnareff the turtle. Yeah, somehow he is sharing the turtle with Coco Jumbo because Coco Jumbo is still alive too. Yay. The turtle didn't die. Polnareff's body kind of just died without any soul being attached to it. I feel like this is kind of similar to that, the, what happened with Raimi and D.I.U. where like Polnareff is dead, but his soul is kind of just lingering attached to the mortal plane because right. he still has a sense of purpose. Which is, you know, watching Giorno take over Passione. Uh, because as we see, both him and Mista are right there next to Giorno when he becomes the leader of Passione. And we get... Yeah, and it's the, it's the scene from the opening where we see the doors of the mansion open up. Except this time we see that it's Mista that opens them up. And we see the wind come in through the windows. The, the golden wind showing the course of progress. And we get that that brilliant scene of the various Capos and Passione accepting Giorno as their new leader. He did it. He did yeah. what he set out to do. It's so yeah, it's very it was very satisfying. And it's very beautifully animated. So that ends Golden Wind. Yeah. This was definitely the second best part of JoJo's, in my opinion. It's a huge step up from the original manga which i thought was a bit lackluster and i talk about that more in my article i really like the themes golden wind definitely has the best written all-around cast of characters in jojo it's just that the story has a bit of missing beats that i feel like could have made it just as good if not better than diu diu story is just tighter than golden wind's is which is ultimately what makes it better yeah, my favorite part, I'll, I'll say, to wrap up my thoughts on Golden Wind, I'll just say my favorite part and my least favorite part. So my least favorite part was the fact that Giorno didn't really get much character, like, characterization episodes 3 through 28. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was, it was a bland character until the last 10 episodes of the show. That's I would not- argue that he got a good amount of character in episodes 3 and 4 because we get, we get to see the Dio side of him for the first time during his fight against with the way that he kills Popo. Right. I meant to say five through 28. My apologies. Yeah, I would say, yeah, I would say that most of his time as 
like just like a member like i mean he he gets some neat moments but it definitely isn't as good yeah absolutely but yeah so i would have liked more but my favorite part of golden wind was was everything to do with the villains i thought the villains were the best part of the show i really oh, I, I really enjoyed king crimson i enjoyed the squadra i my favorite fight in the show is risotto versus king crimson that's my favorite fight in the show and and, the, and it doesn't even involve our heroes no nope. like it's watching two of the villains fight each other <laughs> yes that was so incredibly good, and the fact that we saw Risotto for like three episodes, and it was just him fighting King Crimson, and we and we cared about him when he died, was so good. Golden Wind did the villains really well. Enjoyed the show overall. It was it was a fun ride. Yeah, mo- moving on to other anime, and then Stone Ocean down the road. But oh, uh, I hope Stone Ocean comes soon. I like based on how good Golden Wind's anime adaptation was, I have full faith in the productions doing Stone Ocean justice now. From the little bits and pieces I know about Stone Ocean. I won't mention them here, of course, because Sean knows nothing about the next part of JoJo's, and I'm gonna try to keep it that way. (laughs) But yeah, I would say my least favorite part thing about Golden Wind's writing is that Fugo just doesn't come back as a villain. And there's so much that could have easily been done with Fugo being the antagonist and having like a redemption arc trying to work with other villain members of Squadra could have been so good. I'm slightly disappointed that wasn't the case. I think that he would have fit in really well with the fight against Chocolata and Seko. Kind of realizing how terrible some of the members of Passione are and realizing that it does need to change while also like accepting that he can't, he doesn't want to fight the bots. He doesn't want to die trying to make those ideals happen. I think that would have been a really good arc for Fugo, so it's a shame that that doesn't happen. I completely agree. Yeah, and I also agree with the complaints about Jorno. I also wish that Trish had more fights in the show with her stand because we only saw it a couple times during the fight against Notorious B.I.G. and then the final fight against King Crimson. So it's a shame that she didn't get more screen time because I thought, especially starting from the fight against Notorious Big and going on, I think that she was a really good character. Just wish we got more before that. Yeah, I just wish that we got either more before that or more between the fight against Notorious Big and the fight against Diavolo. Absolutely. But overall, really good. I as as you said, the villains in Golden Wind are fantastic. Squadra are easily my favorite secondary villains of all of JoJo because of how well-developed most of them are. You genuinely feel bad when the gang defeats them, especially in the case of Formaggio, Pesci, Prosciutto, and Risotto, because they're the ones that have the most character. Yeah, I, I definitely would agree with that. They, they, all, all those fights were fantastic, and you mentioned it. If they were the protagonists, that, that would have still worked. Yeah, they have such a dark backstory trying to fight against Passione for the sake of their fallen comrades who were killed for trying to find out the boss's identity, which both shows off how powerful the boss is and how much power he has in Passione and how willing he is to protect his identity, while also giving you a good idea of how driven the members of Wisquadra are. They have a very good reason for what they're doing, but ultimately they fail because they're only doing it out of a sense of revenge instead of the greater purpose of trying to change the system. 
which is why Giorno and Bruno are fighting against the boss. And that's why they're able to defeat him and Risotto isn't. That's a very good parallel. Yeah, Golden was great. I really liked how they used Polnareff. <laughs> Much like how Jodoro was used in DIU. He, he never like steals the spotlight from the rest of the characters, but when he is there, he's one of the bravest parts of the show. Especially when he's in a turtle. Yeah, I especially wa- I mean, episode 33 of Golden Wind is probably my favorite episode of Golden Wind in total. The, the fight between Polnareff and Diavolo is so good. And I especially love the bits of backstory given. I like the explanation that shows that Golden Wind is connected to the rest of JoJo in a really big way. I appreciate all of that really well. Absolutely, yeah. I did enjoy Golden Wind. Yeah, and the English dub especially is probably the best that we've gotten for JoJo. I mean, outside of, like, Ray Chase is awesome as Bruno. Absolutely. He's probably, he and Sean Chipwack as Mister are probably the two strongest voice actors. But the whole cast, uh, Philip Reich as Giorno, Izzy Freeman as Trish McLauer as Abakio, and Kyle McCarley as Narancia all did an amazing job with their characters. But the standout performance was easily Kellen Goff as Diavolo. My goodness. Pro- like, Diablo is definitely not my favorite villain in JoJo's, but Kellen Goff's performance as him might be one of my favorite performances in the English dub so far. Yeah, he's great as Overhaul, and he's also great as King Crimson. Yeah, he plays a dang good villain. <laughs> he is menacing, he's threatening, he has a very commanding presence, and I especially love the differences in pitch with Diavolo when he knows that he's winning a fight versus when he's losing. And this can especially be seen in the beginning of episode 38 during the death loop with his voice cracking because of how scared he is, how frightened he is at the power of Golden Experience Requiem and how much command it has over him. Yeah, that was that was a very terrifying but great scene. Yeah. So I'm sad to see JoJo's go. It's crazy yeah. to think that there isn't a, more to watch now. <laughs> Yeah, I started watching JoJo's back in August of 2019, and finally I have fully caught up on the first five parts. It's been fun. Yeah, it is time to say good goodbye to JoJo's for now. Arriva Darchi JoJo's was our adventure. So that's going to do it for episode 10 of Nerd Explosion on the Cannon Clark podcast. Be sure to check out the cannonclark.com. John Winchrow, like I said, wrote an article about Golden Wind. He also wrote a season three review for Gairu, which we'll be talking more about next week. Yes, with our Frankie and Richie, who we referred to throughout the episode, also wrote a review on crossover. So be sure to check that out and be sure to check out his future content as well. I was your host, the Canna Clark himself, Sean Clark for John Wintrobe. Have a great rest of your day.